Warning, this episode contains discussions of suicide. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome to the 42nd episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month, for our series on giving voice to the voiceless, we will be talking with anthropologist Dr. Allison McDonald and secondary teacher Sally Denahay, who will be discussing with us today about education exclusion and the effects it has on rural youth. Thank you for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for having, having us. Her. Jinx! <laughs> uh, as for usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Sally, would you like to start? Um, so I'm having a dirty coffee this morning. It's my second day of holiday. So What's a dirty um, coffee? That sounds So good. I've just got like a coffee liqueur added to my oh, coffee that's this morning. I was thinking yeah. like dirt, like my son's version no, of no. coffee. Like. <laughs> no, just you know like dirty fries, you add your cheese, dirty mm. coffee. That's dirty, that's beans. great. That happens. Uh, yeah, it's 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 quite joyful this morning. Yeah, and what liqueur <laughs> do you have in your in your coffee, might I ask? Well, I'm normally have Kahlua um, but this morning it's a coffee tequila because I have no Kahlua in the house yeah see I would normally put Bailey's in there that'd be mine yeah Bailey I'm about to move so I don't have so I'm you don't not have using time up for Bailey's no. yeah it's just not in the house <laughs> <laughs> you flock your hair back over your- anyway all right cool um so yeah Sally tell us about yourself um, so I'm a teacher, I'm an English teacher in a secondary school. Um, I've been teaching for about 17 years. Um, I live in Somerset at the moment, but I'm about to move to London to Yay. carry on my yeah. <laughs> um, so hence why um I don't have much in the house at the moment. Um so yeah, so that's basically basically me. Um I uh, but I really love research as well. Oh, awesome. And Allison, tell us about yourself and what you're yeah. drinking, obviously. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm drinking a really straightforward, boring coffee. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. But it's so, in a pretty mug. <laughs> yeah, I also I have a nice I have a oh you I have a nice mug. I like um, how it's blurred, like it has bad words on it. <laughs> <laughs> my background's blurred, so it's like yeah. Okay. Um so yeah, I'm drinking a regular coffee. Um, but I'm enjoying it. Um, and so I am a social anthropologist. Um, I work it uh, in the anthropology department at UCL and I've been there for about nine years. Um, and yeah, my research more recently has focused on issues around education, um, and particularly kind of issues around equality, um, identity. And I worked previously on issues on exclusions and now I'm working more on sort of progressive approaches to pedagogy um in sort of different settings in the UK so okay great so um, I'm really glad that you guys you know it, it seems like you guys have quite diverse backgrounds however um you guys are both focusing on items that I think are quite important um if we could before we sort of dive into the material could you tell the listeners firstly how the two of you met um, and what got the both of you involved in the concept of education exclusion? Uh, so I'll, I'll go first. So um, I, as I said, I've been working as an anthropologist at UCL for about nine years. And uh, about, I don't know when it was, Saturday, 2017. 
Yeah, t- 2016. I 2016, think it was. Sally enrolled on our master's, our flagship master's program, MSc in Social and Cultural Anthropology. Uh, I was program lead at that time, program director, and uh, I also was supervising Sally's uh individual dissertation and uh, did she get doing... a good grade that's what she i want to know <laughs> I oh did, yeah she did, did. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it that money a... you've been paying her yeah yeah <laughs> it was a good piece it was a, yeah it was an amazing piece of work um and sally was doing her uh, her master's part-time and we just kind of got on and got to know each other and she wanted to do stuff in education and i was moving towards doing stuff in education and we just started chatting and there was some funding that I'd identified to do an interdisciplinary collaborative um, piece of research on adolescence. It was the UCL Grand Challenges uh, call for funding on adolescent lives. And I thought this would be the perfect opportunity for me to start kind of to seed um, a bigger kind of ambition that I had to work around education and chatting with Sally. I was like, would you be up for working with me? on the issues of exclusion and yeah it basically snowballed from there uh and we've been friends yeah totally yeah Yeah. absolutely um yeah yeah, it was exactly that i just i was working leading teaching and learning in a secondary school in somerset and i just saw that i was perpetuating problems i could see happening again and again and i just wanted to do something a bit different um and so i decided to go and do this masters and that's yeah so um i was i was researching education while doing the masters um and i really wanted to look at exclusions and behavior but my um actual research looked at something slightly different come the end um but it was great to be involved in these other projects along the way um like the adolescence lives documentary that that we produced um because it was just a um i felt it was really important to hear young people's voices in research and i felt like that was something that was missing that a lot of the education research was so statistical and i wanted to bring alive the experience of what these young people were going through and so that's what alison and i worked on with this documentary where we worked the documentary itself was just um about two young men andy and mike who were telling us about what happened for their permanent exclusion and then how that had impacted their lives since and how that impacted their sense of identity their place in society um and so getting to know them over that those few months was um really powerful experience and um really proud of the documentary that they they built at the end yeah yeah yeah, well, I was going to say, um, so you guys, um, when you approached me initially, you were talking about, um, you talked about how you've been working on this like, several years on this idea of um, education exclusion. And I had no idea about this at all. And I would imagine that quite a few people who are listening right now have absolutely no idea what this is. How does this have to do with anything? Is it part of uh, certain schools or all schools? So could you tell us listeners, especially those that have zero understanding who are hearing this terminology for the first time, what is permanent state school exclusion and um, what sort of schools or people does that affect? So in the most broadest sense, exclusion is the removal of a young person from their educational or from their existing education, from their educational institution. 
Permanent exclusion is when a young person is removed permanently from the school role, so they are no longer allowed uh, to go to that school. And then the local authority must arrange full-time education for that child somewhere else. Um, and this is a, a kind of countrywide government kind of um, policy. And a permanent exclusion is the most serious sanction that a school can give to a young person. Um, and the Department for Education states that it should only be used as a kind of a last resort. Um, it's worth noting that there are also other forms of exclusion. There's like temporary or what is called a fixed period exclusion. Um, and there's also internal exclusions that can actually happen within school. So, for example, the removal from a classroom. Um, but for permanent exclusions, um, some of the most common reasons for why a young person might be excluded from their school is often what's called persistent disruptive behavior. So that will be like many that might present itself in many different kinds of ways, um, acting up in class. It could involve being physically aggressive, assaulting an adult, assaulting another young person. Um, there could be some verbal, um, verbal abuse. Um, some behavior that's at risk to others or indeed putting that young person at risk to themselves so there's very sort of uh, very different very serious uh reasons as to why a young person might be excluded um now at the time of our research which was sort of in 2018 permanent exclusions was a big thing in the uk media um the, it, they were actually on the on the rise so after having dropped sort of in 2012, 2013, they started to actually rise again um, to the point where I think the stat at that time was that 35 pupils a day were being permanently excluded from our schools, which is really shocking. Um, so at the time of our research, there was this kind of uh, serious concern, uh, lots of alarm about these kind of statistics. It's also important to say that exclusion, permanent exclusion, also disproportionately target some young people over others. So for example, research has shown that in some areas of the UK, the exclusion rate for black Caribbean peers is five times higher than that of their white peers. Um, and this makes them one of the, I mean, I think black youth are one of the most excluded groups in the UK, apart from gypsy and traveler children. They're the most kind of excluded groups. So it's important to also realize that exclusion is is, dis, is it disproportionately affects our young people. Um, it's also that boys are more likely to be excluded. They're three times more likely to be excluded than girls. And there's a lot to be said also around that, which um, we probably won't have time for to discuss today. Um, but also young people on free school, school meals, they're also more likely to be excluded. So there's lots of intersectional factors that actually uh, impact the risk or increase the risk of, of permanent exclusion. Uh, and it's also that our young people have really complex needs and that there are lots of vulnerabilities that can intersect with one another as well. So, for example, young people who are growing up in poverty have family problems. There might be parental mental health issues. They might be some forms of neglect, some forms of abuse. Um, there are also undiagnosed learning needs. There are mental health issues. I mean, there are increasing numbers of children with these complex needs. And research has also shown that the, the most vulnerable are the ones who are getting excluded from our schools. So, um, yeah, this is the kind of the sort of the broader context to, to what permanent exclusion uh, is and 
how more broadly it affects um, young people. And I think Sally can say more about the sort of rural context in, in particular. Yeah, I was just going to add to the idea of permanent exclusion. Obviously, you've got this notion like this, a kid will do something wrong or persistently do something wrong, and then they're permanently excluded from the school. Uh, but there's there's more ways now that schools mm -hmm. do that. So there's things like off-rolling where a, a family might be encouraged to take on a homeschooling. It might suit their family more, but without actually really working out whether that is the best thing for that particular family. But it means then the school is no lo longer responsible for um, that young person's behaviour and uh, well-being. Um, and they won't then count against their results either, which is quite crucial in a, a factor in a school. But also there's things like managed transfers or just making arrangements with schools in the area. So you move that child around with the notion of a fresh start being a helpful thing. But if the support network isn't put in place, that instability can make things worse so when we talk about permanent exclusions it's not just the big ticket numbers that you see in the press um, it can also include lots of other methods that are being used in schools now to to address these issues as yeah. they arrive and these are sally said these are largely invisible so actually the statistics that you see in the press are actually probably incredibly uh underrepresentative or or yeah. not actually showing the full scale of what's actually going on in our schools. Yeah. Mm. And I think it might be worth, you know, for people who are, again, are, are listening to this for the first time. I mean, you think about um, the disruptions that come with um, just having to navigate, you know, from the parental perspective, having to navigate, you know, your work or whatever your schedules are, and then making sure your kids go to school or what have you. And then if the kids isn't doing well in school and then suddenly has to leave, then that's going to also affect, have a rippling effect on the dynamics of the family in terms of well, where is my kid going to go during the day? And if, you know, the the alternative option, which we'll discuss in a second, might be a bit further away from, from where the parents are used to. I would imagine that also plays a big part because you want to create this opportunity for the kids, but it might not necessarily work for the parents, I would imagine. Yes. Absolutely. That's definitely a big problem. I mean, we'll come on to that in terms of a rural context in a minute but um yeah it's uh, even if it's not that much further away they might have siblings still at the original school so now you've got multiple settings plus you know you kind of know everyone in that community and you've now got to restart again again getting to know people at perhaps a really vulnerable time in your life like your child is not functioning and settled at school so in some it, it, for whatever reason that's going to bring stress and worry into your life um aside from the fact that those problems might start at home as well there might be you know whatever it might be economic issues sickness whatever it might be that's already complicating life in the was, in the beginning yeah and you know it's it's interesting again i'm, I'm always thinking of um you know w when a new topic comes to me it's like there, there are images in my head of what I assume something is, and I always find that ends up not being the case at all. And when I hear of issues in school, and again, this is largely perpetuated by stereotypes, I had in my head, you know, certain pockets of London where there might be high crime rates or whatever. And so in my head, I'm thinking this is a city issue. But in actuality, what we're here to talk about is this being a rural issue. So could you tell us about how this ex 
exclusion in schools has an effect on students in rural communities, especially those from working class backgrounds? So um, I'm going to start with the working class bit because this, for me, this isn't a working class issue. Um, it is a socioeconomic issue. There okay. is, you know, the, poverty is a big factor in uh, when and how people struggle to settle in school and the kind of things that happen. Um, and there's, a, you know, obviously that's um, widely researched. Um, but it, there's a lot of working class people that are economically stable you know they, some of them are quite wealthy they live good lives they um, have secure family secure social relationships so it's not just an issue of class and I feel sometimes we lump those things mm. economic issues into class um, but it is a rural issue and you know I'm a Somerset girl I'm really proud and love my county a lot, but it is forgotten. So whenever you look up issues of exclusion, you're right. It's nearly always the research and the findings and the resources are always centered in cities. Um, and then when you invite people to Somerset to think about education, everyone has this stereotype of a pastoral idyll, you know, it's all like leafy and pretty and we all live in villages and it's all, you know, everyone knows everyone. And it's, it's not like that. Um, and there's a lot of it that is, but for young people, there's just, there's nothing here. You know, the town where I've currently been teaching for the first, for a long time, it didn't even have a McDonald's in the town. There's nowhere to, you know, for young people to go. There's no, there's no college in that town. There's no university nearby. There's no public transport. So when life falls apart or young people need to just occupy their time healthily, there's actually very little around. There's very few role models. There's, you know, there's nothing to show them what life can be elsewhere. Um, but the same social things still crop up. We still have issues of crime, violence, drugs. Um, so, you know, we're still seeing some of those same behaviours, but we don't have the same resources to help them. And the young people feel forgotten. You know, mm -hmm. it was one of Mike's first words that um, that he used uh, when we were making the film was this idea of being forgotten. You know, mm -hmm. And uh, when I tell kids at school that I researched in London, um, they're like, well, why do you want to teach here? Why do you want to stay here? You know, nobody cares about this place, you know, so like this idea of this, like, just tiny little bubble of, of nothingness is, is quite a powerful one for the people who grow up here. And I think also one of the things when we were making, so part of the research project, the kind of one of the main aims was to um, find ways to share the voice of young people who've been permanently excluded from school and so we did that through making a kind of collaborative documentary and Andy and Mike had a lot of control in fact all of the control over what was in the film how it was portrayed and one of the things that they honed in on was the the idea of the bus stop and they spoke constantly about how basically that was where they hung out there was nowhere else to hang out but the bus stop and they'd sit there they'd drink shitty cider and smoke fags and just idle their time away and it was often where that was the place they'd go when they were bunking off school as well and it became this real kind of metaphorical kind of motif in in the film because it was this really quite um run down sad place lonely place that that 
that just really kind of started to represent a lot of their experiences of education. And in fact, we actually got some graffiti. The lads wanted to sort of graffiti on it. And one of the things in, in by the way, it was wash off graffiti. We weren't like going around. <laughs> um, just like putting <laughs> loads of graffiti around. Services. Yeah. But we were, they, they came up with this idea of using graffiti, which itself is often seen as like a socially deviant thing to do, right? Yeah, you graffiti stuff and it's like seen as... As sort of a bad thing, to, a bad thing to do, so kind of socially. Um, but they used it to kind of play on that. And and one of the things that that Mike wrote was forgotten. Yeah, you know, because that literally they felt like that was it. There was nowhere else for them. There was no life chance. What aspiration could they have? What role model did they have? And they were just kicked out of school and left. And that and that was literally like where we kind of met them and picked up with them to make this film and kind of explore what happened what happened next and it was ironic we we didn't have to stop filming for buses even though we were at a bus yeah. stop like there's just <laughs> you know so that became like this stagnant place is that, like a bus stop should be able to take you places you should be able to go somewhere and yet we were just there and nothing happened there was no bus at all what? on the days we filmed no and we didn't have to stop once for some people waiting to get on a bus or because nope. people were getting off the bus nobody else wandered by we were just apart just from there. one lorry in all the days we didn't have any interruptions while we were at the bus stop no people really either so no, no. one really to like look you know to see what we were getting up to with being like why are you graffiti they're like stop, yeah. go for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> they could use a facelift <laughs> yeah yeah so um yeah, the one time we were like, there were some passersby when we were filming kind of outside the school grounds. And they asked what we were doing. And I said, oh, we're filming about young people excluded from school. And then the guy just started having a rant about how bad these kids were and how they all smoked down the alleyway near his house. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Can we hear in live? Can we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have a minute? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the irony. Um, well, I think if we could, so, I mean, it does, there's a lot we can unpick from what you're saying and, um, you know, maybe we can as, as this conversation continues. Um, but when students get excluded from school, um, I, I didn't, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, what happens after that? You know, I, I worked in, I went and I grew up going to state schools in the U S um, if my accent wasn't abundantly clear, but, um, when I started working as a teacher, I worked at private schools and I knew working in private schools that if a student was being difficult and we did have one instance, um, I knew that that student, I knew what the procedures were because private school, you can kind of say, okay, this, this environment isn't working for you. It isn't working for the teachers and it's not healthy for the other students around you. We'll put you in state education. I'm not saying it's the right decision, but that was that was the option I knew was available. Um, but even looking back, if you're in state education, I'm not really sure what would happen if that didn't work for you. You might move to another school. I know that there are what we would call um, juvenile, it's for students that are like really violent, you know, juvenile delinquent centers or what we would call juvies. Um, but in terms of what the work that you do in, in state education, what would the step procedurals be and what sort of um, alternative provisions would be available for these students? So, I mean, really briefly, uh, alternative provision is uh, an umbrella term that describes 
all the educational provision that falls outside of the mainstream. And it's where young people go who've been excluded from school or who are unable to attend mainstream education for other reasons. You know, it could be medical reasons, there could be mental health reasons. There's, there's actually quite a lot of other educational provision um, that we have in the UK that actually not many people know about. Um, now, some of this provision is state maintained and the sort of maybe the the one that people are more familiar with is what's called a PRU, so a pupil referral unit. Um, now, up until recently, yeah, as I said, the the AP sector and PRUs especially, I think, have had quite a, a bad reputation. They've kind of been shunned as seen as like the underbelly of our education system. Um, and there was a report that came out in, I think it was 2017, um, by the Education Committee, actually called Forgotten Children, that looked at the, the, um, uh, the, what they called the scandal of exclusions and the kind of the AP sector more generally. Um, and what they identified was that this is a very unregulated system. Uh, so unregulated sector. Um, they struggle. It's heavily under-resourced. Uh, teachers are working under incredible constraints and working with the most vulnerable young people in our society. So the AP sector, which is actually dealing with building emotional damage of our young people, dealing with complex needs, building trusting relationships, let alone teaching, you know, is actually sort of quite shunned and, and seen as, as, as in some cases quite stigmatized. Now there are, there is a lot of variation in the AP sector. So there are some, you know, there are some sector, uh, some AP provisions that are really struggling and it's very difficult to provide any level of teaching or care. They can be breeding grounds for criminal activity. But at the same time, we also have some uh, alternative provisions that are where young people are thriving. Um, and there are some proofs like the proof that Andy and Mike went to where they did actually get the care that they needed and they were able to get on to some extent. So it's, it's, it's a very, um, complex, very challenging and very diverse sector at the moment. And, um, but that is basically where, where young people go when they've been excluded. They'll be sent to some kind of AP approve or, or something like that. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that these proofs, like you're saying, that the experience that Andy and Mike had, for them, going there was the best thing for both of them. They both commented on that. They both were able to get GCSEs while they were there. They were both able to then go to college. Um, the woman who supported them, who was like their main person, who was like, I guess, like a tutor role or a mentor role, attended their college interviews with them and supported them through that. Um, and so like for them, like access to that alternative provision was extremely important and fundamental in a journey that helped them to get their feet back on the ground. So when they are good, they are great. Like they provide something really important mm -hmm. that cannot be provided in a hectic, busy mainstream setting. Um, so you know, th that provision is like, it's just so good. And it reminds us that even if exclusion, the idea of an exclusion is a terrible thing, like something that can be really harmful in some ways, having access to alternative provisions to provide resources to meet needs is really important in that journey at times. Mm, yeah. Um, I think at first, I mean, this is honestly, it sounds, it's phenomenal, but it also strikes me that um, it's, 
and maybe this isn't an appropriate comparison, but when I think of people who are struggling in life, right, and they need the support systems that they need, um, a lot of times they might go to therapy and you know that there are good therapists and there are people who shouldn't be therapists. And it strikes me that depending on where you live, what opportunities are available, what you can afford, that could determine whether or not you have a very positive experience and that you get the support that you need as opposed to some who might not be the most appropriate person to be going to for, for help and advice, would you say? Um, absolutely. And I think you're right to point out that there is an element of quality assurance that is needed. But also, a lot of the time, parents are not given a choice or they're made to feel like they don't have sure. a choice anyway. Um, so they feel like you know, that this is the option you've been given this pathway and you've already got it all wrong to this point. So um, I think there might be an element of communication breakdown there. But also I think sometimes, you know what it's like when you, like if you think about the counsellor analogy, the therapist analogy you're using there, sometimes they might be a great therapist, but they're not the right one for you. Right. Right. You know, it's not the right one for you. And, um, and that, could definitely like I know in the classroom I I'm a good teacher and I build relationships well but there are some students that I'm just not the best English teacher for them like I know that you know they thrive better in my colleagues classroom and so if you if I remove the ego from that like oh I want to be the best teacher ever mm-hmm. then immediately I can see how I can work as a team to provide the best support and schools and AP should be in a team together in that same way but also the provision needs to be personalized for young people's needs for sure because a child that is struggling is not necessarily struggling for the same reasons as the next child and isn't necessarily going to respond to the same things yeah i mean i can remember um some years ago i was teaching uh year eight eighth grade um that was fun love that um by the way (laughs) and i had um a student um who was doing his third year in eighth grade and I he was he was 15 and most of the students this was in Italy usually about 12 and so already he had um, there was that you know and he was coming to class with a not the best attitude but totally understandable as to why and then I come to find that I think his, his parents were in the middle of divorce things at home weren't great and um, and it's exactly like you said you know you can't you can't take this personally like as a teacher one cannot take this personally and i didn't um i but i also knew instinctively like i can't teach 19 other kids if this one's got an attitude and in the, and in that case i ended up having him work with another teacher or i would just say you you know you're going with this teacher right now because i cannot the 1 to 19 ratio is already a challenge plus the language barrier. And then, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's, I think for teachers as well, there's a emotional component that we have to try to balance because I think from, you know, watching this video and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on as well. Um, you know, I was hearing the stories about Andy and Mike and the issues they were facing, but I was also thinking about it from the teacher's perspective and all the stuff that they're dealing with and everybody has their breaking point. And if the teachers don't feel like they have the support that they need, it doesn't take much after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to finally just snap and say, get out, you know? Yeah. 
and I, sure. I think that's challenging for everybody. You know, it's not just the student, but there's there's so many different pieces involved in this. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I know Alice and I definitely don't want to demonize teachers, even though some of this can be quite critical of the school system. You know, I work with people that are some of the hardest working people that I've ever worked with. And they deeply care about the well-being of young people. But you're right, you cannot provide the for the needs of some students in a context where you're also trying to manage the learning of all students. Um, and I mean, I, I can think of uh, many occasions, like even since doing this research, where I feel like I, Andy and Mike really pushed me to learn about myself as a teacher and a mother and a friend and the impact that I have on others. Um, even with all, everything that I've learned, I still find myself in a situation where I, I cannot meet those needs, mm. you know. And there's been a young girl that, uh, that's mm. been removed from my class in recent years, um, not just from my class, but her needs go beyond what I can provide in the classroom. And in the classroom, that presented with her being quite aggressive to me and to others, I mean, I'm terribly spiteful to other students, some of whom are quite vulnerable themselves, um, and some of whom who have learning needs, so they can't even process and interpret that spitefulness um, as something that's, you know, about her pain. It's something that's, you know, very damaging to them. Um, so I, to manage that, I have to have her taken from my classroom. But what we need is a connected system. So when she's out of the classroom, I know that her needs are being picked up because I saw her later in the day and she's so tearful and I could feel her unhappiness weighing so heavily on her. So I know everything is a defense, her behaviors are a defense mechanism, something trying to protect herself, but I cannot be there for her and teach English at GCSE level at the same time to a room full of people with their own diverse needs. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I so I think that that's fair. Yeah. Um, so it's not like asking teachers to become more skilled at identifying and empathizing and asking, uh, you know, uh, parents and our communities to come together to help vulnerable people um, might be critical of what we're doing, but it's not critical of the effort that people are putting in. Yeah. Like everyone is working really hard, for sure. It's about identifying like the breakdowns in the system and where the system isn't working and seeing education not as isolated, but as part of and interlocked with much broader social and economic and political factors, right? So this is about zooming out and trying to understand exclusion, not as an educational issue, but a social one and asking the questions, why, like, why, are, why are young people vulnerable in the first place? How can we meet the needs of our young people in a context of this current society that we're living in? You know, what can we do that's going to help every individual flourish? And, you know, exclusions is not the answer to that. Sending them to AP might work in some cases, but not in others. The system is not working as it currently stands. So how, what are we going to do? We're just going to carry on. We're just going to put our heads down and just keep going and say, you know, okay, exclusions have gone down a bit. So therefore, you know, the move towards more punitive, zero tolerance policies must be working. Actually, we are getting better behavior because we've got these more stringent behavior management policies. But if we go back to the young people and their needs and their vulnerabilities, those aren't going away just because you're being told that you can't take your blazer off, you know, at all ever in the school day, like those needs are still there. So mm. what, what's going to happen to them? Like it's going to come out somewhere because 
yeah, it, it, we're humans, right? And we need to communicate. And our behavior is some form of communication, as Sally said, you know, it's something underneath something inside young people that has to come out because they're asking for help. And mm. so how are we going to address that? And I think that is, that is the criticism in a sense that we're that we're maybe trying to make of the education system so it's not directed at teachers who themselves are overwhelmed within this system that it doesn't support them to do what they want to do which is care for and teach young people yeah yeah and if we could kind of focus on that social element um and and the issues that it it, it creates long term um i know that you guys have talked about how um there is a relation between education exclusion and social alienation could you talk about that a bit more as well as um, allison what you refer to as the exclusion to prison pipeline um so if i start on the social alienation it was something that really fascinated me before i went to ucl and did my research um and then it was very much mirrored through um, the things Andy and Mike um, spoke about. So um, I saw um, young people feeling disliked, difficult, challenging students would often say things like, that teacher hates me, that teacher hates me, I can't go into that classroom, the teacher hates me. Or, um, and I would see it like, I'd hear staff members saying things like, I can't understand why those kids are hanging out together. He's got such a bad reputation, you know, he's got such a bad egg, you know, that, um, it's going to drag that person down, things like that. And I've heard that ongoing over the years. So I was aware already of this, the, the ways that we isolate and alienate young people from even like, even at primary school, the naughty kid never gets invited to birthday parties. You know, that just doesn't happen. You see people frozen out socially from a young age. Um, so I was aware of that. And I, that was kind of like in the mix of this idea of engagement that I was interested in. But then Andy and Mike spoke about that mm. really heavily, like um, from, it was really aware, really clear that from the moment in their lives where things started going a bit pear-shaped for them, for different reasons, along with all of the other young people that we spoke to, they were like, different things that were going on in their lives that kind of meant that school stopped being a good fit um, and they started to struggle to the moment where they were excluded was several years, mm. you know, a long, long time. And during that time, they were deeply unhappy and they felt different in the classroom. The word obviously forgotten came up. They felt like they weren't like the other kids. You know, I can't learn in that way. I'm not successful in that way. So, they, they use language like that, showing that they just didn't feel connected. And the more they weren't at school through exclusion or through skiving, the less they felt connected as well. So then they became more disruptive, uh, disruptive. And they could see that in retrospect, like that part of that journey of isolation and how, and they took so much pain for it, like they held so much pain from it. And they were really upset about things like what might seem like relatively small things once you've been excluded and you've moved on you're at an alternative provision you're taking your GCSEs with different young people they still wanted to be part of their old school so to come back to prom to get to say goodbye with the people that were still their peers um, and they hadn't been allowed and that I hear that come up every year when it comes to prom you know why are we inviting those people should they be invited you know I can't believe they even turned up I hear staff saying things like that and it's like, but this is really important because these are people that these students they've studied with for several years. 
to this point mm. and it's not their fault life has gone wrong like even though they you might blame them for their own actions as part of it like it's still a path that they didn't choose yeah. um and so that social alienation really comes through um in just in in lots and lots and lots of small ways that come together to have a really big impact and it has such a big impact on their um self-esteem their sense of self-worth and their, their sense, sense of belonging yeah, yeah. The because so... if you think school is like where you go from the age of four till 18 that's where you develop a lot of your sense of self and who yeah. you are your personhood and so to be ripped from that and to feel alienated from that gives you a sense of you know where do i belong who am i you know why am i not like them imagine being 15 and grappling with those kinds of questions while also grappling with the usual sort of 15 year old adolescent things that we know you know lots of our teens struggle with as then having also other contextual vulnerabilities that might be feeding in you know yeah. so it's a really insidious problem you, you and it kind of taints yeah. the support that they're getting from the ap as well like you know there might be a sense of needing a punishment for an act of violence or for bringing drugs onto school or whatever it might be um not that that was andy and mike's story theirs was more um smoking skiving being sitting in the classroom behavior, yeah in quotations of, <laughs> yeah like much lower level but all the time kind of things um so even if there needs to be a punishment for an actual act like this is punishment that goes on forever and ever. You cannot come to prom. You cannot be part of this. You cannot celebrate these moments. Like they're not just punished for the one act. They become punished as people. ongoing in many yeah. ways. Yeah. As people, they as feel people, that yeah. it informs their sense of self identity mm. of who they are. They take on this idea that, you know, I'm an outsider. I'm a bad person. I, I don't belong here. You know, I was thinking uh, about quite a few things when I was reading um, the material you guys sent over. Um, you know, I think sometimes there is this assumption. I mean, I I, uh, I grew up with um, this mentality drilled into me to just like get over it, which I not always found the most easy approach to deal with things. Um, but I will say that one thing I have noticed is that everybody, regardless of their mentality towards moving past things, has experiences when they were younger that have an effect in the present yes. stage of their life. Um, sure. You know, it could be something as as comparative to these issues. It could be something like being embarrassed about a particular thing. You know, like not to put my husband on a pedestal, but um, but he is right now and he's not here to stop me. But he told me a story about how his dad, his dad had the most horrendous fashion sense. Um, I never met him, but um, when he was alive, apparently he had a banana, like a canary banana suit that he liked that he'd wear <laughs> with a Union Jack tie. I mean, it was heinous and he <laughs> thought he looked good and i'm like whatever man like <laughs> these big he wouldn't just wear socks with um in birkenstocks he'd wear union jack socks with birkenstocks and then go to mallorca like it was that was that level of like hi i am here <laughs> so so fashion wasn't really his thing and my husband was telling me about how he was in year six and he needed new shoes and his parents you know were on a budget 
So the dad, his dad found these shoes that fit within the budget. And he goes, here you go, son. And they were girl shoes. And my husband said, dad, I can't, I can't wear these shoes. I'm going to get, I'm going to get murdered. Like there's no way I can wear these pink lined shoes. You don't understand. And his dad's line was, it doesn't need to be fashionable, just functional. And Richard was like, I beg to differ. So he goes to school in these girl shoes and is teased mercilessly, comes home crying. He's absolutely devastated. And it was only when he saw the state of how upset his son was that his dad finally went grumble, grumble and got him some different shoes. And now that we have kids, my my husband is adamant, like we're gonna get you shoes that are not gonna get you bullied. And it and that's just like comparatively mm. quite small, but you know, in a forty-two-year-old man, he remembers that as clear <laughs> as day. And so you think about these events where it's traumatic. How could you expect anyone to feel any differently? You know, mm. which I think leads yeah. to this other idea of you know this exclusion to prison pipeline. I mean, people don't just wake up to be difficult, quote unquote. They, there is, there is an, you know, there are reasons behind it. And so what sort of, you know, if we look at worst case scenario, what kind of effects could this have on people long term? So, I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, maybe to start with this, the school to prison pipeline, um, this is a term that was actually popularized in North America um in the early 2000s by activists who were trying to describe a situation where there was a disproportionate number of youth incarceration which was starting with the education system and this was specifically about uh criminalization of black youth um a disproportionate criminalization of black youth and actually uh damien sojourner's work uh at the university of california irvine looks at this issue in an incredibly inspiring and i think very thorough and rigorous way and he um yeah has some really incredible insights to come out of that um so that's where the term came from in the uk it's also referred to sometimes as the prue to prison pipeline so some people might have come across it in that sense and it, it is highlighting a similar phenomena which is the link between young people who are excluded and their criminalization uh, and we know there is research that shows a correlation between these harsh zero tolerance policies um, and an entry into criminal justice system um, we know for example the majority of people who are of UK prisoners have been excluded from school. We also, there was some research um, uh, that came out of the Institute of Race Relations in 2000, which also showed that the proportion of uh, pupils in PRUES and in AP uh, is uh, has an overrepresentation of young boys, and this is in London. So we can see clearly that there is something, some alarming situation going on whereby there is a link between exclusion and criminalization. Um, and what this is telling us is that we are failing our young people because by we're not doing enough, first of all, to prevent exclusions in the first place. And when they are excluded, what's happening to them? You know, and this is where it becomes a bigger social question as well. You know, what's happening to these young people? They're just kind of left adrift 
um, and getting involved in crime, getting involved in knife crime. And, you know, we have 16, 17 year old boys who are ending up in the criminal justice system um, in ways that could have been thoroughly prevented had we tried to think about, and it takes us back to these issues of needs and vulnerabilities and these intersectional issues, issues of racism, things that we know are going on um, with our young people, things that we know are happening within our schools. Um, so yeah, the pipeline is really a phrase which I think is pointing to a much more complex problem within our society of which educational exclusion is indeed just one, one part. Um, but we also know that the excluded, well, young people who are excluded from school are also more likely to suffer long-term mental health problems. Um, you know, they may not, they may not go to prison, but they may not have you know, the levels of education required to do further education, to even get any GCSEs. They may not have basic literacy or numeracy. So they're being really, really failed um, in terms of the, on their education. They may be facing uh, long-term unemployment. Um, there may, you know, also be issues around, you know, using drugs, for example. Um, and actually, for us, one of the reasons we wanted to come on and do this podcast is because um we we found uh we found out this year that uh that mike actually committed suicide so you know it's this is not just you know oh exclusions are a really bad thing and then you know they're messing people up it's like no this is a matter of life and death and our young people are being failed uh and you know mike isn't here now to tell his story um it's there in the documentary but it's like what at what point do we need to do people need to stop and pause? You know, what, what needs to happen for, for, um, for people to kind of start questioning? Because I feel like people don't question education in our country. It's just like, oh, this is what you do. You go to school and you go to this school in your local authority and it's just where you go. Unless you've got enough money to send your child to a private school and then you have the luxury or the cultural capital or not the cultural capital, but you have the, 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 the choice you know, to, to send your child to, to, to the school that you, that you want to. But otherwise, you know, it's, it's just something that, that you just do and you just accept it, your fate. And then if your child's excluded, then you just accept the fate of where your child will go. You know, you're given such little choice in the matter. And actually it's like, isn't it time that we started to, to rethink how we're doing education? Everything's kind of pointing to that question. So, so yeah, that's kind of where we're, where we're at. But I think like the exclusion to prison pipeline, those kind of words, and the way it's measured in schools encourages schools to minimize exclusions. Mm. And then that creates a twofold problem. One, it makes managing the classroom even more difficult if you're having to manage behavior you can't safely manage in a classroom. And that can be spitefulness, it can be violence, it can just be disruption, whatever. But it also, you know, those young people, if you just don't exclude them, the problems don't go away, as we said earlier, you know, those, those vulnerabilities are still there. So we have to address this in a, a broader sense and just go than just simply you cannot exclude kids from school like that doesn't make anything better there has to be something more than just that as a as a way like i've worked with te head teachers that have said things like oh, we've not excluded someone for six years or we've not done this for however long and that doesn't mean no children with extreme vulnerabilities mm -hmm. presenting in difficult behaviors mm -hmm. haven't been in front of us that exactly. that's not true at all those i've seen that in almost every school i've worked in so um 
there has to be something to look at here and and i think you know the student the exclusion to prison pipeline you're right is um is so emotive and powerful because it addresses this sense of fear doesn't it like this idea of a criminal in our society that we um haven't changed but actually it's not it's you know like you say Alison, like the mental health issues and then the risk of of suicide the risk of of addictions the risk of so many other things that um that can destroy a young person's life um and you know that for me that just going back into school after hearing about mike and realizing there's young people in front of me that could be on those pathways and mm. i'm still not i've still not managed to change something is that like, it yeah brought it back to the forefront there's still so much work to be done here mm. And when you guys talk about the school system uh, through these, you know, as a result, you know, these exclusion policies, you, you talk about how they seem to be self-fulfilling. Um, I know you talked about quite a bit already, but could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think we, we've touched on this already. And I think it's um, that our schools, you know, our schools are social places, our schools are social systems, they're impacted by cultural ideas. And indeed, they replicate those and sustain those in, um, in many different, many different ways. And I think one of the kind of cultures that we have within our schools is um, this idea of kind of good and bad children. And of course, people who work in schools and work with young people, you know, we know that that's not necessarily black and white. But what came through with our research with Mike and Andy was that that there is very this morality of being a bad kid is something that you take on and you start to you're told so many times that you're naughty you're told so many times you know that you're that you're trying to play up you know there was one incident where i think andy was saying i think i don't know if he'd forgotten something in class that he should have and his teacher was just like oh andy you do this every time typical andy you're just forgetting your you know your book and he's like no i genuinely like i didn't mean to but because he'd been stereotyped as that kid there he therefore he was that kid and that then spirals into the internal exclusion so you get kicked out the classroom and then that spirals to you know fixed term exclusions and eventually it will lead to a permanent, you know, potentially lead to a permanent exclusion. So it's as if our schools are kind of creating this kind of this, this, these, these two classes of citizens, as it was, those who will get their head down, knuckle down and kind of get on, uh, which is no good thing necessarily, because those kids, you know, being really compliant and obedient is not necessarily how we want our young people to, to thrive anywhere. We want to be creating questioning, curious, critical thinkers, problem solvers. But we have these kids who are being, you know, who are obedient to the punitive system and to the, you know, very hierarchical systems that we have in school. And then you have the kids who can't, they can't meet that criteria. And research has shown that there are young people who, who, who fall outside of that criteria. They just get policed the whole time. And, mm -hmm. and Andy describes school like a prison. He says, it's where you go to be trained. They trained you like a dog. These are his words, right? So it's it's as though if you fall outside of that criteria, you then basically become to take on this kind of this idea that you are this bad kid. And that is lasting, like we said, you know, previously. That then becomes your sense of who you are, you know, and people carry that with them today. Like I know adults today who are excluded from school who still think they are bad people, you know? So 
Yes, it's, I think that's the sense in which we're talking about it in terms of the alienation, in terms of the breakdown in, of belonging, the lack of recognition of different learning needs, and that everybody has to fit this very stringent, punitive, well, stringent, stringent criteria. And if you don't, the answer to that is punitive measures. Yeah, and that you're wrong in some way. Yeah. So, like Mike said, things like, um, I wasn't like the other kids, so I messed around. And Andy said things like, this is the school taught him, like, this is my bubble, be happy with your bubble. Whereas AP helped him find his creative side and showed him that the world was his for the taking. So there is a morality there. But within that, there's all the negatives, the social isolation, the social alienation, not being seen well by teachers and adults in your community. Uh, but you've also got the other side, like this idea of the teenage rebel that can then ha give them quite a lot of social influence. And it can be quite charming. So it ends up feeling like a safe space to be. It's, it's easier and more fun to be the disruptive pupil. Um, and that gives you back a bit of power instead of finding power in, in becoming, you know, like ha having the resources to help you over the problems that are there, whether it's a learning need or a social need or whatever. Um, so yeah, the morality is is definitely a problem, and that is created in a school context for sure. And of course, that's also run through with like issues like gender and race. You know, mm -hmm. so we know that teachers have you know unconscious bias towards um, black black and brown students, right? We know that there is institutional racism in our schools. So if you are uh, a black kid, you are more likely to experience these kind of stereotypes anyway before we even get into maybe this morality of being a good and bad kid you know these two things become even more interlocked and even more uh you know problematic so it's it's a really um it's a really complicated and really important issue that we need to that we need to think about you know how how can we create environments in which in which we're not labeling in which we're not judging in which we're not stereotyping in which we're allowing people to express themselves in the ways in which they need to express themselves that you know that obviously in ways that are not harming others but means that people can live in in a community in a compassionate and caring community yeah but i think you could also take this beyond education i mean you think of of industry okay you think of micromanagers um i can say from personal experience, I, I left an institution that was very toxic. And unfortunately, I have colleagues that are still there that are trying to figure out how to get out. Um, but when you talk about these feelings of feeling bad, I mean, you get this in work as well, where it's this idea that like, oh, you must be terrible because your managers have decided they've told you you're terrible and then you feel like well there's no point in me applying for other jobs because um i'm so bad i should be glad i even have this one if i try to apply for another one no one will even accept me not realizing you've basically been gaslighted and brainwashed to think that you're awful and yeah, you know sure. I, I i was fortunate in that we had i mean i could see the red flags from the beginning i had we had a spare income so i could just leave and be like bye 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 but my colleagues weren't in that position you know and even now i remember i wrote one this morning because i am concerned about her mental well-being she's in therapy now she's got anxiety up the roof and i know a lot of it has to do with this particular institution and i said i just want to remind you 
that you're a great person and you're doing great work. And she said, thank you for validating me because right now I just, I don't feel that. And so yeah. I think, you know, if we can, if we can do anything, I think sometimes it's good to have comparisons because there will be people listening who've, who have no idea, they've never experienced this before, let's be honest. But I think everybody's had a really bad boss. Everybody's worked uh, to some capacity in an environment that makes them question whether or not they're doing a good mm. job. And I think if we can take that and say, okay, that's a taste of what to experience. Now imagine experiencing that from when you were a small child all the way up during the building blocks of who you are, you know, imagine how much more of an effect that's going to have on you long term. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a good association. Like, if, and also, you forget, don't you? So even if we did experience it at school, it's so long ago, we've kind of romanticized some of those memories, we've populated our experiences with new ones at work. So you're right, like, it is, it is something that we can uh, all identify with. I think that idea of a bad boss or a colleague that's really influential, um, but yeah, that gaslights and and makes you destabilizes how you see yourself in that space and how powerful that is how it takes over your whole life like you come home thinking about it of an evening you start worrying all night about going into work the next day you're right you don't put yourself forward for promotion but you probably don't promote your work day by day either and you probably don't so, put in your best effort because you feel like you're going to do terrible yeah, anyway right yeah. so it becomes yeah. self-fulfilling like yeah, this, exactly. because you become totally disengaged exactly. and yeah and uninspired exactly. yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Well, um, you guys have said that one of your long-term goals through the work that each of you do is to illuminate the violence of the educational system and the ways in which disruptive, quote unquote, young people are stereotyped and judged. Can you explain to us the ways in which you've gone about doing this, as well as explain to our listeners what causes these stereotypes to exist in the first place, even though I know we've kind of talked about this um, at length already? Yeah, I think I think maybe we've said uh, we've kind of addressed like how these stereotypes um, exist in the first place. Um, I think we use the term educational violence because we really want to highlight that what is happening in the educational system is experienced as violent. It is violent. Um, you know, people might associate violence with it being physical, but actually violence can be emotional, violence can be mental, violence can, you know, violence can be experienced in many different ways. Um, and people are traumatized. You know, what happened to Mike, you know, is violent. He committed suicide. Um, and that is a legacy of his education that, that, that led him to that point. There were other factors indeed, but education was a part of that. So I think part of what we're trying to do is raise awareness of the fact that this is happening and this is happening to young people that your kids might know or the kid that's next door or the kid that you know you're passing in the street you know this isn't something that's like shut away this is something that affects all of us this is about the young people of our country this is about the next generation you know who 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 are going to be the next you know, leaders, the next teachers, the doctors, bus drivers, whatever it is they're going to be. It's about raising this new generation. And and the time is to, to change how we're doing that. The time is we need to, we think we need to rethink, radically rethink how we're doing that. So I suppose we've started on a journey together, Sally and I, even though Sally's been involved in 
education obviously as a teacher for a lot longer than than I have um but I suppose we're starting on a journey where we're trying to ask these questions and move towards um having conversations and trying to support interventions that are going to going to make going to make some kind of difference uh, and to start changing changing things yeah and um, I think the term educational violence is um it's so powerful like I, I I really like it as a term and um and it really for me it started like and I can give you a really good example because um I feel like I still perpetuate some of this violence too which is why I think it's important it's not about reminding like we're not demonizing schools and teachers no, we're trying to think no. about how this is a lived experience yeah so when I was leading teaching and learning one of the things that I did as part of my job was do learning walks around the school um all the time popping in and out of lessons and just seeing what was going on not just the quality of teaching which is what people tend to think of these experiences but how kids are learning what kids are doing in the room how they're engaging in the lessons um and that kind of thing you see a lot of patterns um and one of the things i saw was some ch kids that had the reputation for being challenging and difficult behaviors they would turn up into a classroom and these were all made up names but it'd be like hi ella come in sit down oh tom here's your book bag oh ben such and such and then it would be like oh mark have you remembered your pen today and just the tone shift in that voice the mm -hmm. teacher's voice repeated lesson after lesson day day after day yeah just became something that really informed an idea of being disliked and less worthy than the other students so you know if we think about this through the lens of like feminism we talk about everyday sexism and microaggressions and and i think that this is happening in our schools in the same way and it informs those young people how to feel about themselves because they already are not being treated like the other children yeah. in the room and granted from a teacher's perspective i know from my experience i've pre-prepared that kid's pen because he always forgets his pen or she always forgets her homework or whatever it might be and so i'm preempting that or i'm lining up my class because they're really noisy and those three children are really disruptive so i don't let them in until they're silent i know from my own experience i i carry on doing some of those things because I got to get 34 kids out of my class and the next 34 in and someone's going to be checking that my starter is pacey and because of those, those, those that disruption we've not really secured the knowledge on this play yet and that's going to come up in my review so I'm trying to you know manage like 9,000 thoughts in my head at the same time but the impact on those young people who are struggling already is that they feel like I care a little bit less about them than those other children and so you know i try really hard to do things differently i always have a pot of pens I, they're there and i try to make adjustments so that you know so everyone has access to these things so i'm not singling anyone out but i'm i still can't be perfect um at it so you know a lot of work needs to be done because i don't want young people turning up and feeling like they're not worthy of my time or you know that I don't like them because that's not true I find, I find very few teachers dislike students you know it's not that's not the case we're frustrated because we can't change something we're um, anxious because our pen supplies run down and we've got none left or whatever it might be but the impact on that young person is most definitely violent and long-lasting it informs 
you know, um, their sense, of, as we spoke about earlier, the sense of belonging, sense of self-worth, that has a lifelong um, effects. So I think, you know, it's a great term for that. You know, and I, I find myself, you know, I, I think about some students that I had in the past, and I don't, I don't know if I would have handled myself differently, because I do think that, you know, if, if somebody's being disrespectful, like it needs to be addressed. Like if, if a student's being like blatantly rude to your face, like it's not okay to be like, that's fine. Like it's not, that's not okay. Yeah. But I do find myself thinking about, you know, the ways, especially when I was teaching in Italy, my, my language skills at the time were terrible. And I mean, I was dealing with culture shock. I was dealing with like a host of stuff. And then I was working at the school where there were no rules apparently, because you know, why have rules? That's silly um and, and and really feeling like i needed to put my foot down and i remember there was one student in particular i think he was there for you don't get me wrong but there was one in particular i was just thinking about and i think he was quite used to getting very good grades and it's not to say that he wasn't studious but i think that it had gotten to a point where he thought he was smarter than me and there was a definite clash there a because he wasn't and B, it was causing tension in the classroom. And I think I remember at one point, I just said, that's it in the hallway. Like, I'm not having this right now. And he and another student got in trouble. And I told them off in the hallway. And I told them off in English. And the girl didn't understand what I was saying, but he did. And I said, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? And she's like, I could hear you going, I don't understand. He's like, just say yes, just say yes. <laughs> you know, so it's <laughs> like, but I can, you know, looking back, I think there's always like that questioning, right? Like, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? And I think um, within teaching, it's just good to be reflexive. That's not to say that we haven't done the right thing, but just to be mindful with every decision that we make, you know, going forward, how do we learn from that? How do we make sure that, um, we can separate ourselves if possible. I think it's just a good exercise in life, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think I, that reminds me of a recent thing. I had a student this year who I really struggled to keep in the classroom. Like, and he definitely, it falls under the category that I was talking about a minute ago that he felt I did not like him. So then he would be really defensive and disruptive from the outset of the lesson. And this typically went in a cycle that, happened again and again and again where I'd ha he'd have to be removed from the room using our behavior policy um and you know his behaviors were inappropriate in the classroom but I couldn't get beyond it I couldn't find a way to rebuild that relationship my timetable was so heavy I couldn't get and see him at other times to kind of try and find ways to rebuild that relationship um so it was it was difficult times and i was speaking to one of my colleagues who i do some coaching with and talking about this and saying you know i felt like i'd really let him down and i wasn't being a very good teacher for him um and it was a really important um bit of work that we were trying to um get through and she just stopped me and she looked at me and she said but you are a good teacher because you care to talk about this like you might not be working with him but don't worry there's like there's nearly a thousand students here so you know like that's fine that's why we work together but you you are being good because you are prepared to try new things to talk about it and to talk about the things that you feel aren't working You're right so it is really powerful to do that um because it all too often we try and especially in education you want to showcase the best bits thing and i know that from my research that teachers with a hide 
the bits they didn't want seen, like yeah. the books they haven't marked yet yeah. or whatever. Um, and so it is about making us feel secure to talk about the things that aren't working because it's not a criticism. It's about finding solutions, isn't it? So Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. Um, could you guys tell us um, what does inclusive education look like now that we've talked about exclusive mm. education and how it would benefit vulnerable students? Um, well, I'm, when I was thinking about this, I mean, there's, uh, I'm, Alison can go into a lot more of the research and I know that she's been doing some recently, but schools already have a lot of tools at their disposal and there's some really great work going on. It's just a lot of it turns tokenistic because there isn't time. So for example, something like restorative, using restorative justice rather than just punitive measures can mean a get um, a chance to rebuild relationships to help young people learn to empathize to learn to understand the impact of their behaviors and their choices it can help them learn how to manage their emotions so they're not just acting out of anger um that that can be really powerful but if you're trying to squeeze it into two minutes in your break time when you also need to go to mm -hmm. the loo grab a drink and open your resources for the next lesson then you're not giving them the time that it needs. And so uh, from my experience in mainstream at the moment, that's the biggest lack is there's just not enough time and resources to do the things that we know work. And when they do work, are powerful. Um, but I've just got a job in a new school that um, does things very differently, does give a lot of time to those things. So I'm really excited to, um, to start that pathway in September, hence why I'm moving to London. Mm. Uh, because there isn't anything like this here in Somerset, sadly. So, um, hence why I'm moving. But I think also just yeah, just to follow on from that. So recently, having had my experience of researching with Andy and Mike and others, um, and I do want to to sort of look for potential solutions. So my new research is working on sort of what's called progressive education, more kind of radical forms of education, what's often called sort of democratic education. And what I've been learning in that space is that it really, it's a question of reframing how we kind of set up the structures and relationships within our schools. I'm an anthropologist, so I, you know, I see people as in relation. We are always in relations to other others and of course we know that we live our relations you know all the time we have parents siblings friends colleagues all the rest of it teachers pupils but um the ways in which we structure those relationships in school is currently very hierarchical you know it's the teacher is sir it's miss the you know it's not it's not that's that's a hierarchy that puts them higher than the pupil you know you have to give them a certain amount of respect without that teacher actually having to necessarily gain your respect first um, so there's quite a hierarchical system within our schools. Democratic schools, as an example, do things differently. They set things up much more, uh, is it horizontally? Yeah, horizontally, um, whereby all young people have a say in how the school is run. They have agency, they have decision-making, they, they have some power to decide how their learning will take place. And that is incredibly powerful because that sense of agency and that sense of being seen is and heard really does a lot of work as we've been talking about to make people feel valued people feel worthy people feel like they belong so actually we're thinking about how we actually structure our schools in the first place and how we view those relationships is incredibly important and like sally said this 
a model around a non-punitive system. I strongly believe a non-punitive system that moves more towards restorative justice, focusing on conflict resolution, focusing on trust, focusing on rebuilding and repair of relationships, again, is really, really critical if we're going to not only innate, create the conditions for young people to be able to learn, right? How can you sit down and learn if you feel rubbish about yourself? Like, how are you going to do that? I can't do that. I can't write and work if I'm feeling anxious. No. So why do we expect a seven-year-old to be able to do that? So I think this is what we're, this is a potential way to move towards uh, what we might call a more inclusive education, where we're trying to meet the needs of young people, meet them where they are at. And also, of course, you know, have a much more diverse kind of uh, environment as well. You know, so talking also about issues of race and gender, sexuality, all these kind of things as well, taking into consideration the ways in, the ways in which these factors also are important to learning and making optimal conditions for our young people to, to learn, right? Um, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of how the I think inclusion and education might look like. Yeah, absolutely. And then to bring it back to Andy and Mike, um, and thinking about their experiences, mm. I think alternative provisions can still be part of an inclusive education. And ideally, they're not a one-way ticket. Like to go to an AP doesn't mean you're never back in school. It means like if you're sick and you go to a hospital or whatever it doesn't mean you go don't go back to your normal life once you're well again there's no reason why an alternative provision can't be a two-way thing you go you learn a little bit about this that, and the other that helps you back onto your feet you get some experiences some care and then you can come back like if if the communication between schools and ap's is a community it becomes part of a relationship that is providing all of the Need for all of the needs of our young people, then, then they, then that's a, a resource that we can use safely and, and with a huge amount of trust and a huge amount of care and love and nurture, which these young people need. So, um, and that's something that Andy and Mike spoke very strongly that they received at their AP. So it is possible and it is something that we should be building upon to, to provide space in where there isn't space, maybe in a, in a mainstream classroom. Mm. And finally, what are the ways in which the community outside of education could contribute towards improving the education system for all of its students? Um, for me, I think like, I, I, this is, for me, this is a really difficult question to answer, a difficult question to answer, sorry, um, because obviously, I, at the moment, I feel like I don't have answers. I have questions. Um, and I feel like um, the, the investigating and answering those questions is important, but for the community too. But I would definitely like to see like the things that have arisen, like parents to not isolate students in the school playground, like when you're doing your invites, either do one or two students or do everybody don't leave one person out don't leave them off your christmas list don't not say hello to that parent in the playground because they don't look like you you know it's, not everyone has to be your best friend for you to be courteous polite and inclusive um and the, the same for teachers you know i don't want to hear 
I don't like it. I'm still hearing colleagues comment like I, they say they can't afford school shoes, but they've got the latest phone or things like, like there's so many stereotypes that, yeah. that you know, that, that why should they come to the prom? They were so disruptive, you know, that I don't, those are really unhelpful. So just being open-minded to listen to the experiences of these young people and validate their experiences without their, yeah, but you shouldn't have like, yeah, they shouldn't have. They know they shouldn't have. That's fine. Put that to one side for a moment and just listen um, because we've got so much to learn um, and to gain from that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also, um, you know, you can, there's other, as well as doing everything that Sally says, which I completely agree with, you know, we could also support our striking teachers. So teachers are out on strike right now. And this is why, like everything we've been talking about in terms of the way the system is set up, it's not working. So, yeah, you might not like it that your teacher's on strike and it's an inconvenience for you because your kid's at home today. But the reason is 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 big. And and one thing you could do to show that solidarity to your child is to show the solidarity to the teacher as well. Um, and you can also show support. There's, you know, there's activist groups, there's community groups. Um, a big one for exclusions is a group called No More Exclusions, um, who operate, I think it's in London and also in Manchester. Um, they do a lot of community work. It's a black led organization. So it's a lot to do also to do with racism as well that exists in the educational system. So, you know, there are ways in which you could also just try to educate yourself, um, understand what's going on and unlearn these stereotypes that we all carry, right? We all carry these stereotypes about what we imagine people to be like. Um, so it starts with us, right? It starts within us to, to think differently or try to at least start to question why things are the way they are. And is this the best, is this like the, the best way for, for us all? Absolutely. Well, I have to say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Allison and Sally for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic, as well as the links to the documentary film with Mike and Andy, uh, will be available on our website in the show notes. And if you enjoy the show, then consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron-only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.